0: This is episode 174 with author of the Sprinters Compendium, a cross country and track coach with nearly two decades of experience, and producer of 10 high school state champions, Mr. Ryan Banta. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to will help you run faster at your maximum speed. We're speaking with coach Ryan Banta, the author of The Sprinter's Compendium, on how to develop the capacity to sprint. Even for endurance runners, this is a critical skill that will make you more powerful, faster overall, and more efficient. Before we start, I want to make sure we're all in the same lane here. On this show, You can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, performance psychologists, elite athletes, registered dietitians, and physical therapists who can help you elevate your performance. While you have to do the work, my goal is to show you the most strategic ways to do that work, to work smarter and more productively so that you can take your running to new heights. Because when you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll make better decisions about your training, leading to more effective running, fewer injuries, and faster races. Don't miss all of our other resources that can help you bring your running to the next level. We have a video channel at youtube.com strengthrunning where I answer your questions, show you effective strength and core routines, and talk you through the most pressing training issues that you have. And of course, our home base is strengthrunning.com. For more than 10 years, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. I'm also excited to introduce a new sponsor, the first tech-enabled sports nutrition company, Pure, and that's spelled P-W-U-R-E. You can find them. At p-w-u-r-e.com. All you do is hook up your Strava profile, or if you don't have one, you just do a quick online consultation, and then they'll create personalized pre- and post-run shakes from all organic ingredients. Use code NEXTLEVEL to save 20% on your first month. Our guest today is Mr. Ryan Banta, a coach with more than 19 years of experience and the author of The Sprinter's Compendium. At the high school level, Ryan has produced 135 all-state medalists, including 10 state champions and 15 runners-up. His teams have won 12 district championships and five top-five state finishes in the last nine seasons. He has been elected Missouri Track and Cross-Country Coaches Association president and served on the Missouri State High School Activities Association Advisory Board, and in this episode, we're demystifying speed development for distance runners. We're going to talk about how to run very fast and the differences in how a teenager versus someone who's maybe in their 40s should think about this. We'll also discuss the prevention of sprinting-related injuries, training errors that are commonly made while trying to get faster, and the mechanics of maximum velocity running. Runners, We typically don't really sprint as fast as we possibly can, but we must be able to. And I hope that this episode helps pave the way for that. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Ryan Banta. You know, with your background, Ryan, your expertise, uh, I'm really excited about this. You know, ultimately, our goal right now is to help distance runners get some wheels. And uh, I think you know how to do that. So, um... Maybe we can start with, you know, maybe we could first start with the differences in speed development between a teenager and an adult, because I know that you are a high school track and cross country coach. You work with a lot of younger athletes, but that's not necessarily, you know, your only field of expertise. Um, So let's start with the kid. Let's say you have someone join your team and they have no athletic experience. How do you introduce speed or running really, really fast to someone like this?
1: Well, I think one of the things is, is when we think about young people, they have windows of opportunity to really develop a neurological system that's prepared to handle maximum velocity and acceleration. And you look at there's those windows between like the ages of six and nine, and then you've got like between 11 and 13. And so one of the things that I look at for young people is that, you know, and the research shows this too, is that the more sports they're doing, the more physical activities they're doing where they're picking up a variety of different neural skill sets and they're um, also having the opportunity to compete in a variety of different disciplines is a really kind of like non-traditional periodization scheme. However, if you think about like the difference between basketball, soccer, karate, swimming, they're picking up different biomotor abilities throughout that in different waves throughout the year and the body never really completely gets stagnant because of that. Plus the kids are having fun and uh, enjoying it, you know? And so if I was a person that was looking at, you know, coaching really young people is that they need to have this variety of athletic experiences throughout their youth and developmental ages and really avoid that chasing of a Tiger Woods type where we're specializing really young in one particular thing, because what ends up happening is they just don't have that robust neural network where they can, you know, cross over certain skills and pick up information quite quicker because they've created the bridges to do that. You know, I don't want to see neural pruning where we have track kids per se or linear sport athletes where they're just doing the one thing in the one direction all the time. Because obviously, you have overuse injuries, but you also have to be concerned about what's their ceiling going to be, right? And um, that's where I think a lot of enthusiastic parents and enthusiastic coaches, you know, make major mistakes. If you oftentimes think of for every great phenom, there's probably like a thousand to a million athletes out there that were considered great in their area and became legends as opposed to real stars because they had something that truncated their development early.
0: I love that. It's almost like this idea that, you know, the outlier does not prove the rule. We shouldn't look at Tiger Woods and say, that's the key, specialization early. It's the only way to, to greatness. And uh, Ryan, you mentioned two developmental windows, six and nine and Between the ages of 11 and 13. Now, this piqued my interest because I have a seven year old, I have a five year old. What is going on at that six to nine window that that is kind of important? I can see how, you know, 11 to 13, you're maybe starting to go through puberty. There's a lot of skill development and, you know, a hormonal opportunity, if you will. But what's going on in that younger age?
1: Well, and, you know, I've done a lot of research on my own, but I am not an academic biologist, neural scientist. But the thing that I would say is if we look at like language, right, if a child at six years old is not continuing to speak a second language, they're going to have a much harder time later on um, to be able to speak that because of the neural pruning that the brain wants to do to make itself more efficient, even though by doing that. It makes limited skills. And then if you look for young boys and young girls, they start to, you know, pop off in terms of puberty. So you're making some changes in terms of bone density, length, strength, um, outright power. And especially in young women, I mean, many of the times when young women come into your program as a freshman in your track and field or cross-country program, Mother Nature has given them basically all those raw biomotor abilities of power, speed, strength, bone density, height things like that. And so if you're not moving fast throughout those processes, the body is going to make its normal adaptations. But I think what you do is you could potentially shortchange the genetic expression opportunities that you have within those growth phases, both neurologically and then amorphically.
0: So it sounds like variety is really important when you're developing. I don't want to say even just speed, but more like athletic potential and and the capacity for speed. Um, is it, Are you doing any kind of workouts uh, with these younger athletes, or or is it more play-based? How do you think about that?
1: Well, I love play-based. I think one of the biggest concerns I have before athletes come to me in high school is I see that specialization, which is a problem. So spending, I mean, you know, all year long doing baseball as opposed to, hey, why don't you do baseball in the summer, play soccer in the winter and the fall, you know, play basketball in the spring and then run track. in the the spring as well, and basketball, in the winter, whatever, you know, and you have these different seasons where you're setting things up. And so play is important, but also practice is important. You know, not having a, a ridiculous amount of similar competitions within the sport. I would rather have a variety of competitions in many sports, you know, and play is important. But the biggest thing I think my concern and worry is when I look at the world of P.E., We've done so many things to, you know, lean into the laziness of the average American young adult and, and yeah. kid. And we have too much time on screens and not enough time developing just raw athleticism. And let me give you an example. So, in my PE program that we have in the middle school, and I'm not the PE teacher; I teach uh, high school social studies. But what's really great is the PE teachers in the middle school give me a list of all of the athletes that they have in a track and field unit, which includes everything from the 100, 200, 400, 800 mile, long jump, high jump, shot put. So those are all the things they feel comfortable doing safely. Now, as the cross country coach, one of the things that I wanted to do when I switched from you know football to cross country is I wanted to make sure that those kids that were really good at the mile or the 800 or the 400 were a part of my high school cross-country team and that I was targeting those kids and trying to get them to be a part of my team before they joined soccer or volleyball or another sport because, you know, without talented athletes, you're limited in the progressions that you can get. Um, you can make a lot of improvement and growth, but, you know, you're doing work from a 11-minute mile versus a kid who's coming in at a six-something mile for a girl. There's big differences in the potential there. What's my point? So, over the last couple of years, I've noticed a steep decline in performance in the mile test. I used to have about a dozen or so girls that would rise up um, out of the eighth grade to our high school, and our high school is about 1,200 students. That would be in the sixes. Then that number started to go down. In the last couple of years, there's only been one, two, or three of those girls, and then some of those girls go to private schools. And so now I'm recruiting seven minute pilers. Well, then last year, there were only a handful of seven-minute milers, and now I'm trying to recruit eight-minute milers. Now, I am I am not a wizard, but I can tell you that nothing has happened in terms of mutations that has made us slower. It's lifestyle. You know, it's like when people say kids are different today. That's not true. It's the way that we raise them and the expectations of physical activity. And so if I could pr- promote anything to parents is make sure that your kids are having fun so that they continue to do sport Because continually being physically active, in my opinion, is more important than the physical activity that they are doing. And then once they get into high school, you know, they can pick their favorite sport. And I believe parents should force them (laughs) to continue to do that um, as much as they possibly can to keep them physically active. So I think those are the big issues. I look at developmental um, situations that are going on right now for children.
0: Yeah, I think all this rings true for me as as a parent, as someone who who kind of is is ex- now experiencing all of the societal pressures and cultural pressures of you know having your kids at home, having them be sedentary, and it actually is a lot of work to keep your kids very active. Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> for but- sure. Ryan, what about adults? If you're now you're, we're talking about someone, let's say in their 40s, uh, what do we have to remember when it comes to building speed at this age? And, you know, this is kind of the, the type of athlete that I work with the most at strength running, you know, the adult runner, uh, you know, maybe they've been running for, for a certain amount of time, but they probably started running as an adult. How do we start working on speed development in a safe way for this kind of an athlete?
1: So one of the things I think about when I think about older athletes and master's athletes, and I, I had the distinct pleasure of helping a, a master's athlete reach uh, world gold in the 100 meter dash. And one of the things that we find with older athletes is it's kind of like when you think of the tissue, right? And you're going to a grocery store and you're deciding whether you want a sirloin or, you know, don't ever get prime rib, but, you know, get a ribeye steak or, or whatever. But then you get to these older athletes when we get into the master's level, and our meat is like stew meat, right? And it can still be really delicious. But I look at it when you come to warm-ups is you want to slow cook that meat. So anybody who's going to be a speedy athlete, whether they're you know running a 5K and trying to improve their kick or they're trying to enter a USATF master's sprint race, the warm-up has to be extensive. And I know that early on that's going to be a problem because the warm-up itself could be a workout you know and then once that you adaptate to that now we can get into real training but i feel like one of the things that's most often nerfed for people because they just don't have the time is a proper warm up and proper suppleness training and there's a lot of mysticism out there about suppleness training and how to properly you know stretch the body and make it limber and all this kind of stuff you know a lot of people have proved stretching, oh, it leads to injuries, uh, it reduces the neural impact, you know, your firing patterns aren't strong. Well, the problem with that is, is when you look at the research, a lot of that research was done where people are holding stretches for 30 to 90 seconds and anything in between. Well, the reality is most of us who don't even want to spend that much time warming up in the first place, we're not holding stretches for a minute and a half. And what they found is the research shows that if you hold a stretch for 15 seconds, you get the best benefit from you know being more supple but at the same time not lose the neural component then throw on top of that there's research that shows if you follow it up with some biomechanical running drills or low amplitude plyometrics or acceleration runs it resets the neural system completely and you still have the benefit of the suppleness and so we want to slow cook the meat we want our warm up to be comprehensive you know that's one of the things that i think that as a masters athlete We want to rush things through because, hey, we have lives, we have kids at home, we have a job and, you know, we want to shortchange that and just get to the meat and potatoes. But the reality is, is your meat and potatoes um, isn't going to be as quality or you're not going to be able to train as frequently if you don't have a good comprehensive warm up because you're going to be spending most of that workout just getting through the soreness um, that you have because you can't recover as frequently.
0: I like that, and the analogy is great because I, I'm just thinking about trying to feed vegetables m- to my kids, and the warm up is like the vegetables. You have to eat that first before you get to enjoy some of the, the richer parts of the meal. And so, if you want to do the workout, we got to get through the warm up first. Can we talk about that a little bit more about that? That comprehensive warm up for older runners. Let's say, you know, someone's going to the track. They're going to do a hard workout. You know, they're 45 years old and they want to make sure that they don't get hurt. But at the same time, this is a hard workout. It's fast and they really want to perform. What what's kind of the whole warm up process? How do you go from couch to interval in this scenario?
1: Yeah, well, I think that the biggest thing is is that you want to crescendo the warm-up, right? So everything starts from general and slow, and it picks up pace, and it gets faster and more demanding as you move through I think most of us generally understand that. But the other thing that people don't understand is that it's probably also important to rotate your warm-ups. So that way, as a master's athlete, hey, I don't have 45 minutes to warm-up, but I do have 25. So, what can I do today on my Monday workout and have an A type warm up and then have a B type warm up for Tuesday so that it can be more comprehensive and I can check off all the boxes over the course of a two week microscope? And so, what I like to do with all of my athletes, regardless if they're masters or not, is that we will rotate from a dynamic to a static warm up. And our general warm ups will mimic that, our drills will mimic that, and our suppleness will mimic that as well. And that's one of the things that I think if you're a master's athlete and you're trying to go from couch to moving, that you've got to play that plan out for yourself. So that way it's interesting. You've got something a little bit different to do every other day. And then after a phase of three to six weeks, you build on that and maybe have a little bit more of an aggressive warm up um, that you're fit. So, you know, we don't like, I don't like to just jog slowly when we warm up. But you know, at some degree, what we do, and unfortunately we don't have video here, but we'll do the dynamic warm up where we'll you know do low skips for fifty, side skips for fifty, build up for fifty, walk for fifty, and then repeat that all the way up to a mile and a half um, as we move throughout the season. But we don't start there. You know, we basically add uh, a lap or two every week until we get up to that you know mile and a half of low skip, side skip, sprints, and walk. And then what we typically do on a dynamic day like that is we'll follow that up with a leg swing routine. And then I try to phase my leg swing routines to have three different phases, six weeks apiece throughout the season that become a little bit more technically difficult and skilled. But we have a baseline basic program that everybody can do. And I'm sure that on um, your site and your work, you have programs that are built like that for athletes to use. And then what we'll typically do is that's when I have a conversation with my athletes. We do our team huddle. We talk about how we're feeling. We do a little debrief on the things that we've got going on. How was our sleep? How was our day? What are your expectations of the workout today? And then after the team huddle, then we would go into, you know, our biomechanical drills. And we start with, you know, our biggest, most open chain movement activities first. And then we move from those to being more explosive, tighter, smaller parts of the movement as we've moved through. And then we finish back with full acceleration runs um, at the very, very end. Now, if I'm doing a static warm up, we're going to run. But then, what we're going to be spending more time is doing in and outs, some fartlek type um, running, or working on our stride frequency. So, starting from a slow stride frequency and increasing it as we move up to that one, that magical 180, you know, stride frequency per lap, right? And we'll do that either with music or we'll just do that with a whistle and a cue. And so that would be our static warm-up general part. And then we'd follow it up with traditional static stretching. And even with the static stretching, I'll go from a basic program to a partner-assisted program to a PNF program. And then again, we'll have our team huddle. And then we'd have a different package of drills that would work on a different set of skills for that next warm-up. And that way you progress these different things, you put it in the right order, you give yourself a little bit of variety. But at the same time, there's still a consistency to the structure that you don't feel worried that the next day doing this thing is going to be so foreign that I'm not going to be able to build off of what I've done the previous day.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's the... the- Flexibility within a rigid, rigid structure that allows for a lot of these you know, opportunities to, to play a little bit. And I think the static warm up you described is a good example of that, where you're doing in and outs and different fart like types of running. And, and it's a way to, to play with running as a way to warm up. Uh, Ryan, I'd love to talk a little bit more about suppleness training because you've mentioned it a couple times. I feel like I have a general idea of what you mean, but I'd love for you to go into a little bit more detail.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, um, if you read uh, Yuri Vershansky's book on super training, is this idea that every fiber in your body, muscle fiber in your body, actually responds differently to different types of stimulus. So this idea of just having a passive stretch or a ballistic stretch or a dynamic stretch, and the reality is, is that you need a little bit of everything to give the muscle some knowledge right? So that it is a, uh, it is a knowledgeable muscle on what you're trying to do and where you're trying to put the body through. And so one of the things that I've found is that especially with more older distance runners, masters, athletes is obviously one of the biggest things that's a problem for us is we're just not as limber. You know, like when we think about old man strength, why is old man strength the thing? Well, because neurologically our electrical system can send that really, really strong signal. But maybe our body is so immobile that we can no longer get into the proper positions that we need to get into. And one of the things that I've found with athletes that, you know, I work with is, you know, people are like, well, I would rather not static stretch before for the things that I already mentioned. The problem is, though, is if you don't do that and you don't believe me on the research, which you should. But if you don't, you're like, well, I'll do it after I work out. But usually after a workout, you're exhausted, you're tired, you might be running late. And that's one of the things that you would change on the back end of the workup. Oh, I'll stretch when I get home. Then you cook dinner, you talk to your kids, you talk to your wife, you do bills, you work. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, late at night, you're falling asleep on the couch and you haven't done what you were supposed to do. And so what I want to see is I want to see everything be comprehensive and global improvements for my athletes. So I feel like it's very important for an athlete to have good mobility under speed which is part of doing those biomechanical drills. You know, when people talk about changing your running form, yes, it can, it takes a really long time to do it. And that's why a lot of people don't believe it can be a net positive for mechanics, which again, working with young high schoolers, I've seen it over a four year career because I have enough time to implement the drills and the skills to make positive changes in stride length and stride frequency. But For an older athlete, what those drills do to help improve mobility and suppleness is by putting the body in awkward positions where they still feel stable and strong, being able to move and articulate those different muscles and joints. And then what it does is it forces the athlete to kind of like overload a body position that they wouldn't do while running, but it's close enough, just a little bit higher of amplitude or just a little bit quicker of frequency that forces the body to be stimulated and to fire in the right way to be efficient. Like when we do biomechanical drills, part of it is getting the neurological system to fire properly and thus you move better, thus you feel more supple because you're never asking the muscles to do something that they were not meant to do by having that problem of overflow under fatigue, which then leads to injury. So even the biomechanical work helps you be more supple, more mobile, more agile, and more hostile. And so those are things that I look at. Then on the back end, I would rather cool down instead of doing static stretching. I like to do foam rolling with my athletes or TheraBands and things like that at the end of practice because it does two things. One, you know, you're helping push out some stuff. Two, you're giving the body a massage and a reset, you know? And so I feel like that's a good thing to throw on the back end for supplements as well. And then within intervals, at my practices with my athletes, I have what's called a recovery station, which is like one of these old milk carts where we have the foam rollers, we have the stick, we have lacrosse balls and softballs. And then in that container, I also have a book called Becoming a Supple Leopard by Kelly Starlet. And it's got all of these individual manual manipulation things that my athletes can do to deal with little annoying problems and trigger points that they have within their body so that we can maintain our efforts better through suppleness in the workout, not just in the front and not just at the back.
0: Ryan, I think I'm learning firsthand what happens when I don't follow your advice. <laughs> I am 37 years old, you know, with a background in, in running at the collegiate level. And while I'm not training at the same level, I'm still running and doing workouts and things like that. I don't do as much of all those little things as much as I used to. And now that I'm not 22 years old anymore, I can really feel the effects of not being as supple as I once was. And so you're giving me some some good encouragement that I can relearn some of those skills and and start to almost feel like my younger self again.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, and and that's the thing that I think most of the listeners need to understand is that doing the little things have such a scaling up potential for you as an athlete, because you're not going to have, I, with my athletes, I want to have planned peaking tapering, you know, through a periodization model, a nice transition phase. I don't want to be forced to shut down my training because I'm hurt, injured. um, I'm not taking care of the little things. And the funny thing about it is the little things make bigger and bigger differences when youth escapes you, where you can kind of hormonally um, cheat code it and get away with not doing some of that stuff. As you get older, those little things matter so much more to just being able to consistently perform and train, which will allow you even in your 30s, as you know, you can still run Major PRs in the marathon and a 10K and a 5K, depending on the level of athlete that you are in those upper ages, you just have to stay healthy. And that's the big thing that everybody needs to realize is that this is just not only a performance thing, but you'll have a better quality of life as well.
0: Yeah. And I love the way that you're framing this as, as these little things, you know, they're not really that little. What they do is they then enable your training. They allow you to have a higher capacity for training so that you can then go forward and improve. And, you know, as any coach will tell you, usually you have to train more. You have to take the next step in your training, whatever that might be, if you want to keep progressing. And if you can't progress like that, because you're not supple enough, you're dealing with too many injuries or, all of your limitations are preventing you from doing the higher mileage, the harder workouts, you know, this is a strong case for the little things being just as important as the long run, the workout, the high mileage, and all the, you know, the things that look sexy on Strava.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, when everybody's checking out your stride rate and, and uh, your pace per mile or per K, that's great. And that's wonderful. But the only way you get to the what you said, and I love that term, the Really sexy and interesting training is you cannot have an interruption because if you get interrupted, we our you know our abilities, our aerobic capacity, our VO2 max, you know all these things start to slide in the direction backwards, and you have to start all over again. And that's one of the interesting things because I know in one of the last conversations, even when you were talking about peaking and, and making sure that you know, the athlete is ready to rock. Well, you can't have a really nice, wonderful peak if you haven't gone deep into training, right? And that doesn't get to happen. And then some people, they don't do well with a, with a really good peak. And so the only way you're going to be able to maintain that velocity and that d- density and load is if you're able to maintain those things without these breakdowns in your training. And so the little things matter. And I, you know, that's what drives me nuts when I, you know, I hear from certain expert coaches, especially on the distance end. And it's all about more and more and more volume. And to me, it's like, I want more and more frequency. That's what I want. Not more and more volume, more frequency with a slight elevation of an intensity and specificity to whatever the contest you're competing towards in a peak.
0: I love it. Now, Ryan, I was going to ask you how runners go astray when they try to get fast. And I'm sure we could answer that by, by simply saying, you know, not doing what you've said <laughs> over the last 25 minutes. But uh, if, you, if you could pinpoint some common training errors that you see regularly, what would you say are some big mistakes that, you know, let's maybe talk about adult runners again, adult runners make when, you know, they start doing harder workouts, or they start doing some more speed development work?
1: Right. And so one of the big mistakes I find is that people don't adhere to what I call as a concurrent system. And so what a concurrent system is, is that why are we waiting until the end to run fast? You you know, like if I'm asking you, all right, we're going to go on a lactic threshold run at this particular pace. Well, that lactic threshold run is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. But if you think about percentage of effort, that run is going to you're going to be running the same percentage of effort at the beginning of the season at the end of the season, but the difference is is what that percentage looks like in terms of your output, your speed on the ground, that's gonna be different. You know, like in the sprint world, there are sprint coaches who wait to sprint. And it's like, why are you waiting to sprint? It is a neurological pursuit. And the body has to see that and and the body's shapes have to be put into those positions, right? You need to protect that technical model so that the athlete can do that. And so what I see as a big, big problem in all of distance running is that there isn't an attention to the nice progressions. You know, like if you're a sculptor, you don't want to have these big rough ridges between your shapes, right? You want everything to flow and be smooth together. And even though the activities look somewhat the same, you've got to figure out a way to build those things in. So like, if I'm going to run repeat miles, you know, like I'm going to build to that. I might start off with repeat 400, 600, 800, 000, then 1200s and then to a mile. And then when I'm moving my training back, I'm going to do the same thing. But you know, you talk about multiple zone running and things like that. It's like there should be all of those zones of intensity, whether it's, you know, special endurance or speed endurance for distance running or, you know, lactic threshold or aerobic threshold or cruise intervals or whatever. All of those things should be present. Within a two week plan for you on a regular basis. Because if not, then you're going to put yourself at risk when you throw in a workout that's so foreign to the athlete that they could get hurt, they could get injured, or as you talked about in one of your previous podcasts, you're going to spend a whole bunch of days trying to recover from that because it is so abnormal. And then by stair stepping those things in, in terms of load, intensity, and theme in your program, and then doing the same thing on the back end, you don't have this situation where you feel like, oh my God, I'm underprepared. I need to do this, I need to do that, because it's already been there in your program on a regular basis. So like if I have a quality day on Monday and I have a recovery run on Wednesday, and I have a long run on uh, our quality or recovery run on Tuesday, long run on Wednesday, you know, followed up with another recovery on Thursday, some kind of speed orientated workout on Friday, and then another pick your poison on Saturday and Sunday, you're giving yourself the opportunity to have these physical different experiences that attack different parts of your race. And so what I often see is that we wait too long to do the quality. Quality should be there all the time, but you don't have to go to the maximum velocity and intensities of those quality workouts and volume. You stair step that in As you support it with good general aerobic fitness, whether it's a long run recovery run um, or a tempo run, things that distance runners are more comfortable with. And that should be present in your program as you move forward to whatever your key competition is or workouts. And then what happens as you get within the last month and a half um, before your big race, you can then slide in specific workouts for targeting the challenges of a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon or marathon.
0: You've made a really great case for nonlinear periodization here. So I would assume that you, do, you don't take the principles of strict linear periodization to heart. You're more of a nonlinear guy.
1: Um, well, so I've got this thing called the critical mass system. And in the critical mass system, the ideas and the principles around that training is figure out what are the key performance indicators for that event. Spend a lot of time doing that through the entire season then what you want to do is you want to race just above or train just above or just below the intensity level of that specific event. And by doing that, you're underloading and overloading, which is giving you an opportunity to then do what I call, you know, uh, keeping that specificity or critical mass of intensity, density and theme throughout your training throughout the season. But one of the things that I don't do that other coaches do is, you know, if you think about it, aerobic system takes like 28 weeks to reach an aerobic peak. Well, if you're going to race multiple times in a year, then your training's going to have to look different at a certain point of the year because you've only got 52 weeks in a year. So then the training has, once you bring that athlete to a peak, you're going to have to come at that distance race from a different direction. And you're going to have to do it from a different direction. So I had the the pleasure and privilege to coach Emily Sisson and Diane Robinson in high school. Everybody knows who Emily is, and, and Diane was a SEC record holder in the 5,000. Those two girls couldn't be more different, yet they both were All-Americans in the Indoor 5,000 and both ran professionally, and obviously one is the best in, in American history. But you know, where Emily loved to run lactic threshold runs, Diane hated them. She would rather come at it from a speed endurance, let, you know, run as many repeat thousands and sixteens as possible, or Emily hated running repeat thousands and sixteens. So when, when we come to that training in the regular track and field season, we, we attack it from a different perspective because we want to honor the differences between cross country and track and field. And by doing that, then your, your plan, your annual plan has to model the things that you want to attack, but then you also have to understand that what worked at the, you know, beginning of the year during the winter or the fall, when you're going long on the roads needs to be different when you go into the spring. And so a lot of times, you know, traditional distance runners look at that Matt VF bottle of, you know, decreasing volume and increasing intensity. And the reality is, is that that cannot happen, you know? And so I try to bring my athletes to a peak in the winter and then a peak in the spring. And then from the spring, then we move you know, like a freight train in terms of increasing the volume and, and all that kind of stuff in a more traditional sense. So I like so long answer. And I like to mix different periodization schemes to attack the unique qualities of the, of the sport, in which we're competing.
0: That's fascinating. And, and I'm a little jealous because of your position in kind of the high school world, because you can work with athletes for years and years and, you, you know what they're going to be doing on an annual basis, you know, with track and cross country. And so there's, I think, an interesting opportunity there to really tailor this training very specifically to the age of these kids and, you know, the the rhythm and natural cycle of the school year. I think it's just a a, a great opportunity for a high school or even a college coach who's in, under a similar schedule as well.
1: Absolutely. and And the biggest thing is, you know, when we look at this, we're trying to you know, make it fun for the kids and keep it interesting for the kids as well. You know, if you're doing the same thing all year long, that is a grind. And it's hard to keep those kids in. And then, you know, to speak to your point, as a coach of high schoolers, if they do stay in for years, I really get to figure out what is best for them. And then they teach me lessons that I can then use on future athletes that have a similar genetic makeup or personality type or experience. And then that allows me to experiment with programming and things like that, where somebody who's a private coach, hey, these people are paying you and they could go to anybody and get any help from anyone. It is a little bit tough because you've got to make a difference for them right away, whether it's attention, performance, confidence, trust, whatever it may be. And of course, we want those things in a high school setting as well. But we have a little bit more time to be patient to allow those things to come to us and reveal themselves naturally?
0: For sure. Now, Ryan, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about an issue that I have whenever I think about distance runners doing anything that's really fast, you know, anything that's, you know, 98% of maximum effort, all the way up to a full sprint at, you know, full velocity. How much should we endurance runners, us adult endurance runners, really think about our mechanics when running really fast, because admittedly, we don't really sprint too often, of course, not nearly as much as actual sprinters. But you know, we want to sprint at the end of a race, we want to be able to get up to top speed and have that capacity, that mobility that, you know, just uh, a functional ability to sprint at, at high speeds. So You know, uh, sprinters will work on their mechanics a lot. You know, there's a lot of work on form. How how should runners who are really interested in the endurance events think about this aspect of technique when it comes to those really fast sprinter oriented speed development workouts?
1: You know, it's amazing at the more elite levels, obviously technique and sprinting is going to make a difference. But when you get to the sub user, whatever, sometimes it's just fast and ugly wins the day anyway. But if you're a distance runner, there's so many things going on there where mechanics plays an incredibly important role. First of all, if you look at the backside mechanics of all athletes, whether they're a 10K runner all the way down to a very good and smooth long jumper, their backside mechanics are the same, which tells you that if you're going to be an elite mover, an elite runner, that at the bare minimum, the way that that foot gets brought through the you know the knee on the opposite leg and folds nicely underneath the butt, and we see that kind of nice figure four position where the leg's posted and the other leg is driving forward and you have the opposite arm and opposite leg action going on, that you want to see that for your distance runners as well. Now, the front side mechanics are different because that's where you get into this idea of stride length, flight time, and then the athlete really projecting their their vertical projection is driving that knee forward and high. And so you see a lot of bigger amplitudes, but of all of the distance runners I've ever had that spend a lot of time hurt, it all has to do with the fact that they don't strike the ground very well. And they're on their heels a lot more than they're on their midfoot or front foot. And so if you're a distance runner, if you're spending all that time running and you're putting in thousands upon thousands of physical ground contacts, like, wouldn't you want that to be as close to under your center mass as possible? Wouldn't you want your anterior and posterior to balance out the movement and push a vertical projection so that you can get the most out of it and not have an overuse on the front side or back side? I think we'd all answer yes. So even though you know distance runners don't oftentimes think like, oh, I got to look clean or, or really fast like you, Bolt. The reality is, is your version, your shape, your cycle is still going to need to be just as smooth. It still needs to contact under center of mass. You still need to dorsiflex your foot on on takeoff um, as you rotate the foot from behind you to the front of you. And you don't want to have all this wasted time of a long looping back stride or where you have your hips that are pointed more down and rotated down to the ground and you're spending a lot of time running from that lean position and bones and joints and muscles are doing work that they don't need to do. Once again, the cleaner your mechanics can be, not necessarily is going to improve your kick as you're trying to run down your neighbor in a grudge match on a 5K, but (laughs) it will allow you to stay healthier for more of the race and be more efficient. You know, like, again, we come back to that stride rate. How do we get the stride rate up? Well, a lot of that is going to have to come from not wasting a lot of time with long backside mechanics, getting that foot through having that toe pointed up to your big shin, bringing it over the knee and firing it down. And that requires a lot of practice. And and again, the biomechanical drills do two things, right? They help your suppleness, they help your, your mobility, they help your mechanics, they help your firing patterns, they help you strike the ground correctly, and they help you stay healthy. So I feel like it's maybe Even more important for distance runners to spend time on working on technical aspects of their run at the beginning of their practice to be able to learn how to fire better over more time and be a thinking runner as they move and then eventually go from a thinking runner to being unconsciously being able to do that because it becomes part of your gross motor pattern. But it doesn't happen without practice. There's a lot of talk right now and debate on Twitter where people are talking about just natural self-organization versus coaching. Well, if if everybody self-organizes to the exact proper way, then why do we have people that cannot squat like they could when they were a baby? Why is it that we have people that run on their heels and when they were younger, they ran on the front of their foot or their midfoot? You know, they're learning bad habits or they're allowing themselves to slip into bad habits by not doing the little things that we talked about to be able to maximize their body's elastic potential. And so I believe in it. We do drills every day. And that is where I coach the most. It's really funny when kids do warmups and other programs, a lot of coaches will just sit around and talk about their day and a bad kid in class. And that's where I do the absolute most coaching. I'm jumping in, I'm showing them the proper positions, I'm showing them what they did wrong, what they do right, what they did wrong, what they do right, let's go again and move. You know, I'm paying special attention to hip position. We always tell them, you know, shoulders back, chest up, hips tall, and then we rotate into the drill. I have my athletes on a line, so we're aiming small and missing small on the track, so that way you know, oh, I've got an imbalance, I keep leaning over to the left or the right, you know, and that line holds you accountable to a strict uh, movement, and we progress those drills just like we uh, progress our suppleness training, again, with different packages of an A and B day, and then three phases throughout the season where we're doing more and more challenging and difficult technical drills built on the previous drills so that, again, it's not alien and we don't have delayed onset of muscle soreness, but that it's aggressive and keeps the body interested, keeps them peaked and doesn't let them go docile.
0: So it sounds like a lot of the things that help you warm up, a lot of the things that help you prevent injury and that enable faster running also really improve your mechanics as well. So a lot of drills and, and a lot of practice with running fast. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. And if you look at like um, Shaley Flanagan, when she was with Coach Cook, they used to clown on Coach Cook because he had her doing all these hurdle mobilities and drills and medicine ball activities and, and different types of warmups. But the reality is, is that what is going to separate your performance from other people? everyone runs. Everyone runs a really long time. But how are you going to keep yourself healthy, improve your mechanics, improve your power, improve your stride rate if you're not doing those things? And then the biggest thing is they have to happen at the beginning of practice where the central nervous system is going to be the freshest for adaptation and for you to just get yourself into those positions. And so those things are critical. And it's the only way, I always talk about it with my kids. I'm like, we want to create as many separation points between us and our competitors. And so we have to be creative and inventive because we're not at my school. I can't have my girls go run 60, 70 miles a week. Like some schools do, you know, we're not going to have guys run a hundred miles a week because we're in a high school setting. You know, they have their own social lives. They've got school, they've got homework, you know, it's just impossible. So how can we figure out other ways to attack the problem while still respecting the anaerobic, anaerobic aspects of the sport.
0: I love this because adult runners, I think, can, can listen to this and, and really see some low-hanging fruit for improvement for them. Because I, I know that almost no adult runners are doing a lot of running drills. And uh, just the inclusion of some drills two or three times a week can be a big differentiating factor between you and everyone else. And so I think that's a, a really uh, a, a really nice way to kind of, you know, start down this process of, okay, let's improve my mobility, my ability to have a, a good range of motion, my suppleness, and then my speed. I think that's a, a great start. Um, and I can't say
1: to that, I hate to jump back in, but the big thing is, is this could sound like a lot, right? It's like, oh my God, I got to plan all this stuff out. And the reality is, it's like pick eight stretches you like, both dynamic versions, static versions. Pick eight drills you think would really help you out as a runner and that you can improve on and then create another set for the opposite day. And then as you do it for three to six weeks, you have plenty of time to come up with another phase that you would be comfortable with that you're interested in doing so that it it gives you something to look forward to as well, while you're not overwhelming yourself with like putting together some kind of crazy 12D chess training scheme. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I like that. You don't, want, you don't want to make it too complicated. And I like the, the AB uh, structure really makes this uh, chewy and tangible for people because they can just simply alternate between two different types of warm ups, two different focuses, if you will. And I think that's an effective approach. Uh, now, Ryan, our theme at strength running this year is taking action. And I think a lot of runners, you know, we, we understand what to do, but we often just don't follow through. So I'd love some really actionable advice, something runners can take home and implement today, something super tangible, you know, perhaps some low risk strategies that distance runners can incorporate into their training today, or maybe within the next week or month that will help them develop more speed. Now, I think drills was (laughs) that was probably, uh, you know, one of the top suggestions here. But how else could we start working on this if if someone is either a clean slate or they just don't have a lot of experience running super fast? I would
1: think that the biggest thing is, is is pick one type of workout that you haven't done that you think could benefit you and run it through a phase of three to six weeks and see what it does. I think that's number one. I think one of the biggest things that's, you know, active change, right? What is the moment of change? What is the the lubricant between not doing something and doing something? And a lot of that has to boil down to psychology. So low-hanging fruit to me is like, what are things you can do to put yourself in a positive mindset to get yourself to follow through with those New Year's resolutions and those goals? And so one of the things I look at is, you know, you have a gratitude journal. That for 21 days, no matter how terrible things are with COVID and the world that we're living in right now and the unknowns, you pick out three good things that happened or that you have going on in your life every day. And then after 21 days, you begin to rewire yourself to have a more positive and and, and good outlook on the world. It's proven science. And so if you do that, that's going to allow you to then go take on some of these challenges because you're not going to be as afraid. The other thing I really like is develop what's called a 24-hour taper. Now, this is done by a sports psychologist named Brian Risk in Canada. And what it is is 24 uh, hours out from a major competition or a scary workout. You have one thing every hour that you're awake that's positive that you're going to do for yourself, whether that's call a relative and tell them you love them, um, read a poem from your favorite poet. poet. To listening to a stand up comedy set, to getting yourself hyped off of Goggins or somebody out there who's just, you know, just exuding this go get it attitude. And you have something every hour that you can do for yourself to then put yourself in this incredibly positive mindset to go get it done, to create that lubricant between no and yes in your brain. And I think that that is something that someone can do right away to get that stuff done. Pick a small thing that you want to experiment and you want to have fun with, you know, three to six weeks in a workout, and then figure out psychological components to get yourself ready to take on that thing that you find to be most fearful that you may be not willing to do, but you know, will make you the best runner and the best athlete you can by creating just a couple small psychological skill sets to help you get there.
0: I love that, Ryan, and you know this is this is great because now we're starting to talk about the mental side of training and racing and competing, and I think the psychological end of things is almost just as important as the training itself. And I, I think we might have to have you on for a round two to talk more about those psychological issues. But this has just been fantastic, and I, I love bringing on folks who are working with a lot of runners, but maybe their focus is on sprinting or it's on the strength training or it's on sports psychology. So uh, this kind of a conversation I think allows us to gain a more holistic understanding of the training process and on very specific issues within the training process. So I I had a blast. Thank you so much. Where else can people go to learn more from you and figure out what you're doing with your work right now?
1: Well, they can find me on Twitter. That's where I spend most of my social media bank account, so to speak, at Sprinters Compend, which is a shortening of my book's name that I wrote and I authored, which is the Sprinters Compend. And then they can also find me at my YouTube page, Phantasmo nineteen seventy eight, where I put a lot of drills and workouts and training and periodization schemes and you know, I wax philosophical on on life and, and coaching in general. So those are the two places that i most frequently put up my content. And, you know, um, the book that I wrote, even though it's titled The Sprinter's Compendium, everybody needs to be fast, whether you're running the 100 or a marathon. And so there's a lot of applicable resources and training ideas and sports psychology that could be useful for any athlete who wants to run fast linearly.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. I'm going to have links to all these different resources and locations where you are online on the Strength Running site so folks can check it out. Ryan Banta, thank you for being here.
1: Jason, it was an absolute pleasure to be on with you and and your audience.
0: There we go, runners. I hope you enjoyed hearing from coach Ryan Banta and learning from his experience and his expertise. Don't miss his book, The Sprinter's Compendium, if you want to geek out on all things sprinting. Don't forget to check out our newest sponsor, Pure, at pure.com. That's P-W-U-R-E dot They're offering 20% off your first month with code NEXTLEVEL at checkout. And what they do is pretty cool. You either use your Strava data or an online consultation, and they create pre-run and post-run personalized shakes using organic ingredients. They're the first company to use your fitness data to craft on-demand nutrition. And I think the potential of this is just awesome. It reminds me of the testing and the effort that goes into elite marathoners and their fueling. Pure has been testing their products with pro runners. And the promise here is that they can deliver optimized better ratios of carbohydrate to protein so you can perform better and recover faster. You get a post-workout dose recommendation, so everything they make and recommend is unique to you, and all of their formulas can be made vegan. There are four flavors to choose from, and you can even add vitamins. I thought it's pretty cool that 82% of users saw performance and recovery improvement after just a month, and 86% would recommend it to a friend. See all they have to offer at pure.com. That's P-W-U-R-E dot com. And don't forget that the code Level will save you 20% on your first month. Thanks again for subscribing to the show. Stay healthy and safe out there, and we'll talk soon.